Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latour. The Film Noir Foundation's Noir City Film Festival series is back this month with Noir City Austin, from Friday, May 19th through Sunday, May 21st, at Austin's Alamo Drafthouse Ritz. FNF founder and president Eddie Muller will be there in person to present classic heist movies, including High Sierra, The Killers, and Armored Car Robbery, one of the best leading roles for Charles McGraw the actor we discussed on last month's episode with McGraw's biographer, Alan K. Rohde. As the festival notes put it, Armored Car Robbery features McGraw playing a prototypically tight-lipped L.A. flatfoot matched against goggle-eyed heavy William Tallman in the film noir equivalent of King Kong vs. Godzilla. We have a link in this podcast episode's notes for the full schedule and tickets for Noir City Austin, so be sure to check that out if you'll be in the area. And now, let's talk to our guest for this episode. This month is film critic and historian Imogen Sarah Smith. She's the author of the books In Lonely Places, Film Noir Beyond the City, and Buster Keaton, The Persistence of Comedy. She's written for publications including Film Comment, Sight and Sound, Film Quarterly, and many others, including the Criterion Collection. And she's also written for the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City e-magazine ever since it first started. Imogen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Hagai. Great to, great to have you on with us. So let's start a bit with your background. How did you get into writing about um, movies and then eventually noir in particular? Well, you know, I guess I, I think of myself as being a writer first. I have always written and in my younger days wrote fiction and poetry and other things and gradually sort of shifted into writing um, about movies as I was getting more and more interested in them. I don't, I don't have a film degree. I'm pretty much self-educated in cinema, but somehow writing about movies was the thing that really clicked for me and that seemed to get the most interest and the most responses from people. Um, I had long been a big fan of Buster Keaton and, sort of through a serendipitous connection, was invited to write about him. And, you know, I'd always, I, I loved film noir, but kind of was a bit daunted by the sense that, well, what can I write about that's really new with noir? And then I got this idea for writing about non-urban settings as something that hadn't really been discussed much and tended to be, you know, people really still think a lot that it has to be in a city, that that's, the, you know, one of the defining characteristics. And, and yet I was thinking about how many movies there are with these different non-urban settings. So initially I wrote a couple of essays, which were on an online journal called Bright Lights, and they were spotted by some of the Film Noir Foundation people who worked on the on the Noir City magazine, and I got a nice uh, email asking me if I'd be interested in contributing. This It was then, actually, the Noir City Sentinel. This would be in about 2010. Um, and I had been familiar with the Film Noir Foundation and 
with Eddie Muller's work, you know, and had read several of his books and knew about the Noir City Festival and had always wanted to go. So I was, you know, I was thrilled to be asked to write, um, to write for them. So I formed that connection and, you know, started coming out to the festival, started writing for the magazine, and, you know, I guess the rest is history as far as my connection with the Film and Art Foundation. And I guess, I mean, I write, I write on a number of subjects, but, but I have really, I guess, become known most for my writing about film noir, and that's the bulk of what I've done for the Criterion Collection. I have a monthly column on their website, which is devoted to noir as sort of broadly defined, um, and I've written booklet essays for several of the films, all, all in the noir vein. Um, so, and I still have to say, I don't feel that I have, in fact, uh, exhausted the topics that I can write about related to noir. There's plenty out there, as uh, as you've been writing for the the Noir City Magazine for many years with a lot of different themes. And uh, we're going to get to a couple of your articles a little later, as well as, of course, your book that you mentioned, the In Lonely Places. So um, let's get to the commentary track you did recently, one of your recent projects. It's for a new DVD and Blu-ray release of The Scar, which is also known as Hollow Triumph. That's a 1948 movie starring Paul Henry and Joan Bennett, directed by Steve Seckley, with cinematography by John Alton. And that DVD Blu-ray is out now from Kino Lorber in their Kale Studio Classics line. So let's just start with the uh, the very basics on that. So um, with Paul Henry, this was an interesting project for him because he was also the producer. So um, what's a bit of the background on how that got started? Well, it's it's very interesting. He's not only is he the star and the producer, but in his memoir, he says that he actually took over directing the film. Um, it was uh, the, Steve Stichelli, the credited director who originally brought this novel called Hollow Triumph to his attention, um, and, and he had hired Stichelli to direct. And I guess he says, you know, the studio was not happy with the rushes and you know, made this change, but I guess for contractual reasons, continued to credit um, Sakelli as the sole director. Um, it, it certainly, at any rate, is at this turning point in Henry's career where he's moving into directing. He would go on to direct a number of films afterwards um, and also into producing. And it's a very interesting role for him, you know, since coming to Hollywood, he had mainly been kind of typecast in these romantic roles, but often, you know, somewhat weak parts that he was not very happy with. And in this, he, you know, he gets to play uh, two parts, actually, um, because it is a film about doppelgangers, and he's a gangster named Johnny Muller and also a psychiatrist named Bartok. And, you know, it really plays to this quality he had of, of an ability to be very ambiguous and, you know, not obviously a good guy or a bad guy. It's interesting to me that this kind of notion about doppelgangers and about, sort of physical transformation seemed to have been 
a recurring theme throughout his career. Probably his best-known film as a director is Dead Ringer with Betty Davis. Um, the second of two films in which Betty Davis plays twins, one of whom, you know, uh, steals the identity of the other. And he also starred in a film called The Stolen Face with Elizabeth Scott, where he plays a plastic surgeon who, uh, you know, operates on female criminals with scars um, on the on the assumption that when their looks are corrected, their their characters will be reformed. And he sort of gets carried away and turns this one woman into the spitting image of his lost love. Not, I have to say, a very good movie, although it's kind of an interesting premise. But this, these kind of themes about about identity theft, about doubles, interestingly seem to play out a lot in his career. And I don't know if it's facile to say this, but seem perhaps fitting with the kind of, um, you know, the number of people in noir who were exiled, who were people who were kind of creating this new life in a different country, in a different culture. There's a lot of, of sort of reinvention, but often, un, you know, not often somewhat unsuccessful reinvention in noir and a lot of play around the idea of the difficulty of really seeing what is people's true nature or the question of whether people even have really a stable nature, which is a fascinating theme that's often tied to these kinds of movies about people who attempt to uh, have a new life or a second life and usually find that, um, you know, there's no escaping fate. Another thing you mentioned in your commentary and uh, a theme in the story that's common to other noir films and wanted to ask about is the theme of the main character in The Scar, that Henry's uh, gangster character, Johnny Muller, he's always banking on the idea that people are not going to notice stuff that's right in front of them. With the, um, There's a heist very early in the movie where they just walk into this casino setting uh, with tons of people there, and they just hold up the cashier with everyone around them, and he insists, oh no, it's okay, nobody will really pay attention to that. And then later in the movie, when it's the double situation of the um, psychiatrist, who is also played by him, who he looks just like, then he insists, well, I can take his place, and nobody will notice. So you talked a bit in your commentary about how that theme of people not really noticing or being too absorbed in themselves also relates to film noir in general, or a lot of noir movies. So do you want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting things in The Scar. It's, you know, it's a movie with an extremely far-fetched plot on the surface, um, which does you know, you really need to suspend your disbelief. And yet I feel like what makes it interesting is that there's a kind of a kernel of psychological truth in this idea that people are much less observant than they think they are. And are, you know, there's this notion of everybody be kind of being kind of wrapped up in themselves and therefore, you know, not really noticing what's going on with other people. And, you know, I mean, deception is, or betrayal or the sense of someone you think you know turning out to be not who you thought they were is in practically every noir plot. I mean, that's really such a, a crucial 
thing in noir, and one of the but one of the other nice things in the scar is that you have Joan Bennett's character, who is just wonderful, being this really disillusioned, wised up kind of woman who has this attitude of you know having been totally disenchanted and having no expectations and having seen it all, and yet at the same time is strangely sort of taken in by by Johnny Muller's character and by this, um, you know, this switch that he pulls, and she actually knows both men and yet seems nonetheless to be unable to tell them apart. So, again, it's something that, you know, a, a small shift in the way it was written or the way it was played could just make it seem really like a flaw in the movie. And yet, to me, it's actually, you know, it works if you sort of dig beneath the surface and look at what it's trying to say about how even people who have perfected this kind of attitude towards life that a lot of people in noir have um, of expecting the worst are nonetheless still often kind of blindsided by the things that happen to them. So another of the highlights in this movie, along with certainly Joan Bennett, that's a, a great performance by her and a great character for her. The cinematography is particularly strong. It's uh, was uh, photographed by it is John stunning. by yeah, it was photographed by John Alton, one of the greatest noir cinematographers, and Eddie Muller in his uh, Noir Alley introduction on Turner Classic Movies just the other week for He Walked by Night talked to sang John Alton's praises and uh, I think all noir fans certainly admire his um, style and is generally considered one of if not the best practitioners in the classic noir era of that style of lighting so he was also a European emigre just like uh, Paul Henry so you want to talk yes about he was Hungarian um, as was Sakeli and Henry was Austrian so they're all very much from the same part of the world and the scar is a is an, a, just a textbook example of the kind of expressionist influence that the European emigres brought to Hollywood. And I think it's hard for us now, looking back at these films, to see how radical the cinematography was compared to what was, you know, the classical Hollywood style, which was always, you know, evenly lit. And, you know, the idea of using extreme low lighting so you can't even see the sets and having these, you know, distorting angles and the kind of, you know, lights placed low so they cast these strange shadows. I mean, all of that was just not done um, in Hollywood in the 30s. But it's, you know, it's bringing in styles that you see in silent movies, you know, of the 20s, especially from Germany. And, you know, in the same way that there's actually a quote that, that I love from a writer I really admire named James Harvey. Um, and he says this talking about Siod Mack, another European emigre. He said, film noir licensed stylization in Hollywood movies. You know, the classic Hollywood style was the idea that direction should be invisible, that if you notice the direction, it's bad. You know, that was always the kind of party line. And even some directors who really were great stylists kind of towed this line that, you know, oh, you shouldn't notice the direction or it's taking you out of the story. You know, you're just supposed to 
be paying attention to the characters in the story. And noir completely broke that rule because you can't watch these movies and not notice the style. And that was something that really people like Alton and Nicholas Nuzaraka, who was at RKO, they were really the pioneers of this. And of course, one of the great things about it is part of why they were doing it is because they were working with really low budgets and, you know, they developed these styles that were cheap and quick and used a minimum of lights and they could sort of disguise the, you know, scarcity of resources that they had, but in this way that really added to the movies. And that is a key to, I think, what makes noir so wonderful and so sort of subversive in, in being the opposite of what Hollywood was usually about, which is kind of like, look how much this cost us to make. Um, so, yeah, um, the scar is, is great looking. And, you know, the stylization, the, the visual stylization perfectly suits what is a kind of stylized story where you have to almost think of it as being fantastic it, you know, and expressionism, if you really think about what that word means, it means it brings what is in the inside to the outside to be, you know, expressed. It's bringing the interior to the surface. So you're ending up with a visual style that is representing the interior states of the characters, the sort of the paranoia, the anxiety, um, being manifest in, you know, somebody being in a room that's dark with a neon sign flashing outside the window in this kind of spasmodic way, which you get in, um, in the scar. And, you know, being in a narrow alley with a light sort of shining in your face, it's, it's a visual style that is really about creating the mood and taking you into the inner experience of the characters. And that's what expressionism is all about and the uh the hard-boiled dialogue of course was a real staple of a lot of these movies and there's a particularly good passage in the scar that you mentioned on the commentary as well absolutely the um yeah where joan bennett is talking with paul henry and uh she's talking about how she's been wronged by men before but she kind of can handle it or she's hardened herself to handle it and he says you're a bitter little lady and she says it's a bitter little world it's a bitter little world full of sad surprises and you don't go around letting people hurt you yeah that is a wonderful passage and that became as you mentioned one of the basically the motto for the film art foundation for a while it's a bitter little world Yes, it, it stands alone wonderfully, but it's also the, the whole passage that it's embedded in is also wonderful. And Joan Bennett's delivery, which is this kind of almost um, affectless sort of trance-like delivery, is great as well. And it's, it's pretty much summing up that whole sort of ethos of being hard-boiled, um, which, as I said before, people usually turn out not to be as hard-boiled as they would like to think they are, but, but they've perfected this style, you know, and at least it's like, even if they're going to lose, they're going to, you know, lose with style. What happened? Did he hurt you? Do I look hurt? 
I should say you do. Oh, don't fool yourself. You don't get hurt these days. No? No, it's very simple. You never expect anything, so you're never disappointed. You're a bitter little lady. It's a bitter little world full of sad surprises, and you don't go around letting people hurt you. So let's talk now about a couple of the Noir City e-magazine articles you've written fairly recently. One for the most recent issue, which was the fall 2016 small screen issue of Noir on Television in the 1960s. And you had an article in it called Wanted Man, The Fugitive, all about the TV series The Fugitive from the 1960s. And uh, the the issue of that magazine, of the Noir City E-Magazine, this particular issue overall, talked a lot about the transition of film noir from the 1950s, when it was still in cinemas, really to television in the 1960s, where a lot of people who had worked on film noir ended up moving over to TV to do similar kinds of shows. So can you talk some about the background of the show and how it fits in with the overall noir period? Sure. I mean, it kind of connect in a way with what I was just saying about the scar. In a sense, noir suited television because, you know, it didn't need sort of big big sets, big budgets, special effects, any of those things. It can be very small and very uh, tightly focused. And, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, in the 50s, when this kind of competition started between the movies and television and Hollywood was terrified that people were going to stop coming to the movies because it would, they had TVs, the reaction was, you know, Cinemascope, Technicolor, 3D, you know, make the movies something that you couldn't experience at home. And so, again, it was these kind of giant budgets and blockbusters and... Um, you know, sword and sandal epics and so forth. And meanwhile, television kind of was able to do very much what the B movies had done. You know, like what you really need is good writing. You need, you know, good, competent actors. And that's about it. Um, so it did provide a great kind of refuge for a lot of the people who'd worked in noir. And at the same time, and The Fugitive ran from 1963 to 67, so it's right at the, you know, after the classic noir era, and it's a time when crime movies of the 60s are moving into this very different kind of amoral and very cold, very, you know, cool, removed sort of style, you know, things like Point Blank. It's a, it's a very different ethos from noir, because noir is really about kind of extreme emotions and melodramatic situations. And even though noir is often very morally am ambiguous, it's still, being the classic noir era really existed within the context of movies still having to kind of have a moral viewpoint. And in a sense, that kind of survived on television longer than it survived in the movies. So again, it's kind of like at the time when the movies are really trying to move into this new direction and, you know, like how do we, attra how do we attract youth audiences and kind of keep up with the, what's going on in the 60s, television was still a little bit sort of behind that curve and still more in the sensibility of noir. So... The people behind The Fugitive, the concept was 
uh, from a writer named Roy Huggins, who was extremely prolific on television. I mean, he was also, he also came up with uh, Maverick and the Rockford Files and Run for Your Life. But he had his first, uh, I think his first film screenplay was Too Late for Tears, one of the films that was recently restored by the Film Noir Foundation. And according to, I think I read this in an obituary of him that he had claimed that he learned to write by copying Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely Longhand. So he, you know, had this background in noir. And his idea for The Fugitive was really sort of how could he draw on this sort of figure of the drifter, someone who was existing outside of society and sort of moving from place to place and not forming ties, but in a contemporary setting. And he came up with the idea of a man who is falsely convicted of killing his wife. He escapes. He's on his way to be executed and escapes and, you know, exists as a fugitive um, while he's trying to track down the man he thinks really did kill his wife and while he's being obsessively pursued by uh, a police lieutenant named Gerard. So he has this basic premise. And apparently when he, you know, when he tried to take this idea around to people, everyone was absolutely horrified and offended by it. Um, as I, I guess, you know, television was really still um, pretty old-fashioned. And the idea of suggesting that you know, just the justice system in the United States was not perfect was seen as sort of shocking to people. But he eventually, you know, did find a producer. And the producer of the show, Quinn Martin, who had also worked earlier on The Untouchables, specifically wanted to draw on the style of noir, wanted to give the show a kind of cinematic look and a very nocturnal kind of dark quality. Um, it often takes place at night. It's about this man who is really kind of existing on the margins of society, even though he is innocent and even though he is, a, you know, a, a virtuous person, he's forced to live like a criminal. And Quinn Martin understood that he said the basic appeal of the show is that everyone feels vaguely guilty of something, even if they're not sure what it is, and that even kind of law-abiding people have a kind of distrust of authority. And so he understood that people would really uh, sympathize with this character, which they did. It was a very, very successful show. And famously, the final episode was, up to that point, the most watched episode ever um, on television. It's since been displaced, but still one of the most widely watched episodes and you know it paints a pretty bleak vision of the country and it's about this man who is kind of struggling to hold on to his identity as he is unable to you know he's constant every show he has a different alias he has a different job he's in a different place he can't sustain a relationship he has sort of no belongings he has no no ties at all he's just kind of adrift so it's a, it's really draws on a, an, a very american kind of 
romanticization of that as sort of freedom and yet at the same time a depiction of the the real sort of misery and tedium of that kind of life. So there's a, an interesting sort of paradox about the show um, that even as it constantly assures us that he really wants to go back to his small town life as a pediatrician, you know, we, you kind of just want to have him keep on being this character who is um, living in this shadowy, marginal existence. There's, you know, I don't think there's ever been anything quite like it. You mentioned the uh, the show lasted for about four or five seasons, uh, and each episode was an hour long. So that must have been quite a lot of research for this article. Did you go back and watch every single episode of, of the uh, series, or had you seen it before? Well, <laughs> I had seen it. I had seen it before. Um, by the time, you know, I had started talking with Eddie Muller about writing something on the fugitive several years ago. You know, when I first started watching the show. I, I did watch it over the course of several years. Um, and so it, it had been one of the ideas that was kind of in the back of our minds. And then when they finally did this long-awaited um, issue that was devoted to small screen noir, it was a perfect fit for that. But I had at that point already finished watching the series. I went back and, and looked at a few episodes again um, particularly, you know, to write the sidebar about the about the female co-stars and, you know, highlights and episodes that had particularly um, memorable performances by women. But yeah, I had already seen the show. <laughs> I, I don't think I could have watched all of that. Um, yeah, that would be quite just, a bit. Just to do research for that article. That would be quite a binge watch, as uh, people do know. Yeah, you know, television back then was not designed for binge watching. I mean, nowadays, TV shows have, you know, a, an arc, and it's sort of intended that you'll watch it all in one piece. But television back in the 50s and 60s was very much about the idea that, you know, you would want to come back every week and kind of, it would be sort of the same but different, you know, and and there was a, a repetitiveness about it, which is kind of comforting, but it would, it would not, it would not work if you were watching one episode after another, after another. Um, right. And, um, it's, it wasn't, it was intended to be seen, you know, spread out. Yeah. Once a week. Exactly. Uh, and you mentioned, of course, the creator Roy Huggins earlier, and it seems to me, I'm not as uh, well-versed on TV history as, as I am with movies, but it seems that in many ways he was one of the forerunners for the big TV show creators today, who many of whom are very famous and who have big audiences that follow them from one show to the next, like uh, Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, David Simon, people like that. One of the very first back in the 50s and 60s who had multiple hits, one after the other, with a loyal audience following from one show to the other was Roy Huggins, it seems. Yes, I think certainly Roy Huggins had a gift for coming up with these sort of premises that could sort of be infinitely extended. I mean, people even at the time used to joke about, you know, I mean, the show is supposed to be, it, it's suspenseful. And yet, of course, you know that, you know, 
Gerard is not going to catch Kimball, and Kimball is not going to catch the one-armed man, because if either of those things happen, the show would end. And, you know, especially watching it in hindsight, you know it's not going to be over, you know, in the, in the third episode. And yet, somehow, it's, somehow it works anyway. The suspense works anyway, and it was sort of able, they were able to carry that on, and, but it had this style where there's a basic premise underneath every episode, and yet every episode is also a kind of freestanding drama, because each one would have different guest stars, and it would sort of be about a drama that would unfold in a particular place, and you know, the the fugitive would become involved in this in some way. But by doing that, it's almost like a kind of omnibus program where they could do almost anything plot-wise. So it was able to keep going for quite a long time. And there's sort of a, you know, arc through the show of him gradually becoming more and more sort of hardened and more and more embittered by his situation, but it's kind of a subtle undercurrent. Otherwise, it's sort of like, you know, this eternal holding pattern, <laughs> um, which how you did, it, it, I mean, it, it went for four years and it ended because David Jansen, the star, decided he just was so exhausted from doing this. He couldn't, you know, he was in every scene of every show um, he decided to leave, and that's why the show ended. So it, it could possibly have kept going even longer. Uh, that's a lot of noir for any one person to handle when you have to carry the load every single week. Yes. I mean, he, it's really, not just that it was kind of a physically strenuous part, but, I mean, he is just sort of constantly under this stress, and that's what makes it such a successful performance that he gives is that he never ever lets you forget or or lets the, his character forget that you know this is a man who is you know under sentence of death and that he's constantly you know look scanning his surroundings and worrying about you know when he's going to get caught and it's this tension that he creates that I think is really what is so gripping about the show but I think was very stressful for him to have to be in that condition in, in every show. The Fugitive. A QM production. Starring David Jansen as Dr. Richard Kimball, an innocent victim of blind justice, falsely convicted for the murder of his wife. Reprieved by fate when a train wreck freed him en route to the death house. Freed him to hide in lonely desperation, to change his identity, to toil at many jobs. Freed him to search for a one-armed man he saw leave the scene of the crime. Freed him to run before the relentless pursuit of the police lieutenant obsessed with his capture. So another article that you wrote recently for the Noir City e-magazine was for the fall 2015 issue called, uh, the issue was called Women in Film Noir. A great issue, I think one of the very best that Noir City magazine so far has produced. And the article you wrote for that issue was called A Light in the Dark, Ella Rains and Film Noir's Working Girls. 
So that is all about the actress Ella Raines, who had a number of um, well-known or now well-known film noir roles in the mid to late 1940s. So we'll talk a bit about her and also a general thesis you have about female characters in film noir. And I'll just start off by quoting from your article where you said, if it were true, as many have asserted, that the femme fatale was spawned by men's anxiety about women entering the workforce during World War II, that the figure demonized emancipated women, then why is it that femme fatales never work or want to, while noir's career girls often appear as saviors, the light of hope glinting in fate's darkest corners? And one of the key examples of actresses who played those career girls in film noir was Ella Raines. So let's uh, start from the beginning. Can you tell us a bit about her background and how she got into the movies in the first place? So, in Ella Raines had a sadly fairly brief but kind of shining moment in Hollywood in the 40s. Um, she came from Washington State. Um, she had this kind of, of outdoorsy, tomboyish, upbringing, I think, was always a very confident uh, woman who was very comfortable holding her own with men. She went into, well, uh, like a lot of actresses, supported herself modeling while she was studying acting. She was um, discovered in New York by uh, Charles Feldman and was signed by a production company that had been started by Howard Hawks and Charles Boyer. And oddly enough, never wound up appearing in a Hawks movie, but was sort of groomed by him. And she attributed, you know, she credited him with teaching her a lot about naturalism in front of the camera and about pacing and you, you know, she is very much what we think of as a Hoxian woman, even though, as I said, he never wound up directing her. Um, really, what, you know, her great piece of luck was hooking up with Joan Harrison, who was one of the few female producers in Hollywood in the classic era. And, you know, Eddie Muller wrote a wonderful article about her in that same issue. And, you know, I wrote the piece about Ella Raines. Uh, as a sort of companion to that. Um, but Joan Harrison, who was at Universal, and she formed a great partnership with the director, Robert Siodmak. And the three of them together, you know, made several movies together. Ella Raines was in Phantom Lady, The Suspect, and The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, all directed by Siodmak. And all really wonderful films um, in which she gives really interesting performances and she and Joan Harrison were obviously very close and you know respected each other a lot and Harrison later on produced a television series that Ella Raines did um, in the 50s and you know it's hard to say why after this kind of meteoric rise um, her career didn't really uh, sustain itself at that same level. And then, you know, she wound up retiring from the screen fairly early on um, and just, you know, getting married and becoming a, an army wife. But she is, to me, the you know, the ultimate type of this, 
a working girl in noir. And as I said in that quote that you read, and as I've sort of um, written a, a number of times, um, you know, a lot of people have written about the femme fatale that this character came out of, you know, the post-war era and then came back from the service and they were, uh, you know, women had been working during the war and there was this kind of male anxiety about women being emancipated and so they created these figures that were uh, demonizing kind of strong independent women. And then there are, to me, this doesn't really make any sense because the character of the femme fatale is never a woman who works. She's always a woman who uses men to get what she wants and uses the most traditional kinds of feminine wiles, you know, uses her sex appeal, but also uses this kind of appeal to men's chivalry, you know. Uh, I'm so weak and afraid. You're brave and strong. You know, help me, Mr. Spade. And at the same time, there are these characters, not only the characters played by Ella Raines, but, you know, Lucille Ball in The Dark Corner, um, some of the kind of, of uh, nightclub singers played by Anne Sheridan and Nora Prentice or Ida Lupino in The Man I Love, who are these women who are supporting themselves. And they are the most positively portrayed characters in noir, I think. They're honest, they're smart. They're, you know, they wind up, you know, helping men who are in trouble and really kind of being able to take care of themselves. So they're really a kind of holdover from the 1930s, from, you know, the fast-talking dames who were played by Stanwyck and Claudette Colbert and Jean Arthur in, in movies of the 30s where women were much more often sort of allowed to be these career women who are nonetheless, you know, presented as attractive and not as having to somehow, you know, make a choice between working or, you know, having what a woman is supposed to want, you know, having a, a romance and a family. So it's this kind of last gasp of that as in the post-war era, you know, it was really moving in backwards into a much more traditional kind of, uh, you know, limited domestic roles for women, which you also see in noir. And these kind of working girls are mainly something you see in the 40s. And that was certainly Ella Raines, you know, her uh, peak years were right after the war. And even, you know, she made her first movies during the war and did play these kind of characters like army nurses, you know, who are the classic kind of Rosie the Riveter types and then, you know, moves immediately into being these kind of um, career girls. And The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry is one of the most sort of interesting examples of a movie that really undermines the usual sort of assumptions about women in that era and women in noir because she plays, you know, a very uh, kind of high-powered working woman. She wears these kind of man-tailored clothes. Um, and she's remarkably for the time presented as being clearly a kind of sexually experienced woman who is not, you know, um, 
is, is interested in having a relationship with a man, you know, whether or not it involves marriage. And yet she is clearly the good woman who is going to save this man played by George Sanders, whereas the character played by Geraldine Fitzgerald, who is his sister, who has this kind of unhealthy attachment to him, is very much of a homebound sort of traditional woman who just, you know, is devoted to this man and yet is presented as being this kind of, you know, incubus who is sucking the life out of him. So it's... um, it's very interesting. And, you know, Ella Raines just, you know, she was incredibly glamorous and beautiful. And yet, interestingly, was never really cast as a femme fatale, which, you know, she could certainly have done had she had she wanted to. Um, But instead, she's, I mean, as I said in the article, like the good, the, the good girl who looks like a bad girl, she has the kind of allure that you associate with the femme fatale character and yet is almost always playing much more admirable characters who have this kind of gallantry towards men who are often presented as as quite weak. So yeah, I was, you know, I was very happy. Um, I was, you know, that was, that article was, um, sort of pitched to me by Eddie, and I was very happy to have a chance to write about her. And I uh, should mention that Phantom Lady with Ella Raines, one of her best-known roles mm-hmm. today, that is scheduled to show on Turner Classic Movies in the Noir Alley series, hosted by Eddie Muller next month on June 11th. So everyone should be sure to check yes. that out if you haven't seen that movie. And the last thing I wanted to Don't talk about... Don't miss it. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I wanted to talk about with uh, Ella Raines before we move on to your book about film noir is... A little hypothetical game. So as you mentioned at the beginning, she was originally groomed in Hollywood as uh, by Howard Hawks. Um, he was looking to cast her in his movies, but for whatever circumstance, it never worked out for her to appear in a movie that he directed with the particular Hawksian woman sort of type that was exemplified by certainly Lauren Bacall and To Have and Have Not or um, many other examples. So I wanted to ask you, if we do a hypothetical, what... Howard Hawks movie do you think would have been a good role for Ella Raines during her career during that period when she was in Hollywood I think there's one that's kind of obvious that would be good for her and one that's less obvious I'll put that out there mysteriously uh, of course I'll explain it but what, uh, what do you think well I'm interested to hear what you think um, <laughs> and it is interesting that you know it was around the same time that she came, that Ella Raines came to Hollywood, that Lauren Bacall also came to Hollywood. And, you know, it's not that hard to see Ella Raines in some of Lauren Bacall's parts. But I was thinking, you know, and this the first one I thought of might be cheating a little bit because it's actually out of the period. It, it's something from before Ella Raines actually had, had met Howard Hawks. But um, I have always thought that... Uh, Jean Arthur, whom I love, but I think she's very miscast in Only Angels Have Wings and seems very uncomfortable with the things she's being asked to do. And she just, you know, she was one of those kind of working girls, but she's kind of a very different style. And the sort of way she's expected to play off Cary Grant doesn't seem to work for her in that movie. This may be a minority opinion, but anyway, I could see Ella Raines in that part, you know, this is a kind of itinerant woman entertainer, you know, who's very much on her own 
and has this wonderful kind of swagger about her. Um, so that's one that I could see. Um, the other that actually uh, struck me was possibly Red River. Um, yes. Ella Raines did, you know, appear in some westerns, and as I said, you know, kind of came from a background where she had grown up. She um, was very close to her father, and he had sort of taught her to shoot and fish and so forth. So she could play these kind of tough, you know, western characters, and that's another film in which the woman's role played by Joe Andrew doesn't really work for me. Um, it's, you know, some of the problems are, I think, written into the role, but I have a, you know, like maybe Ella could have done something with it um, that would have, have worked better. So those were two that, that I thought of, but I'm okay. interested to know what you were thinking about. Right. So for me, the obvious standout one is Red River, as you mentioned. I think that's pretty uh -huh. clearly the one you go to. Uh, and I actually do like Joe Andrew in that role, but um, I do think that just that character and the way she interacts, especially with Montgomery Clift's character, that is a textbook Ella Raines role. Like she would have been mm -hmm. letter, letter perfect for that part. And with Only Angels Have Wings, as you mentioned, it's a little bit out of the time period because Ella Raines was, was a few years uh, too young for that. She hadn't come to Hollywood yet. I do actually like Jean Arthur in that role, but I had thought of that as well as if it had been a few years later, right when Ella Raines got to Hollywood, uh, she may have played the Rita Hayworth part. Which is, a, which is a much smaller That's, part. That is actually also a good point. I could see her in the Rita Hayworth part. Um, yeah. yeah, that could have been a good introduction for her. If it was very early in Ella Raines' career, the Gene Arthur part is a really big role. Like, that's carrying the whole movie mm -hmm. with these stars. Um, although I'm, I'm sure she would have been great in that, too. And for me, the kind of not obvious one that I hinted at is, and this is very much outside of the period of her career, would be none other than Rio Bravo, which was after the Angie Dickinson role. Yes. I, you know, I did, I thought about that one as well. And I could see her in that role. I mean, I think Angie Dickinson is really wonderful in that part. And, is, yeah. um, you know, so I guess the, the problem with playing this game is that, you know, we don't necessarily want to take these roles away from the actresses who had them, but yes, <laughs> exactly. I could absolutely have seen Ella Raines in that part. And yeah, I mean, these are all, I mean, particularly Red River and Rio Bravo are, you know, these women, I mean, the woman in Rio Bravo, like the character in Only Angels Have Wings, is this kind of, you know, woman who is on her own in a, in a world which is very much not designed for a woman who's on her own, you know. She's very much in a man's world. She's the only woman around. And that's, you know, I think Ella Raines would have been very comfortable and very much able to carry that off. You know, she certainly plays some very Hoxian types. Although I have to say, when I was thinking about this, um, because you had, you had raised it earlier, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, as much as she is kind of a Hoxian woman, she has, has a kind of down-to-earth quality. Ella Raines also really is so suited to these kind of... Um, more mysterious and darker settings that she is in in the Siodmak films. You know, it's, I mean, it's probably just sort of her look and the kind of aura that she has about her. But um, even though she's playing, you know, very uh, straight arrow kind of women, the fact that she has this ability to create a kind of aura of, 
of mystery or um, of of allure and intrigue really suits her very much to noir and and the hawk's kind of an, of atmosphere is a bit different so um you know, maybe it was all for the best. Right. Although that role in Rio Bravo, the Angie Dickinson part, and she is magnificent in that role, and that jump-started uh, her movie career. And it is hard to see anyone else playing that part because she was so great in it. But it is kind of a slight air of mystery to that character of, like, where is she from? Mm-hmm. So I think that could have been good. And another reason is, so the age difference in that movie with Angie Dickinson and John Wayne is about 24, 25 years, right? So he's old enough to be her dad. Right. Uh, it, still, it still works fine, but it is kind of noticeable. And Ella Raines was about 12, 13 years younger than John Wayne, which in Hollywood terms, like, well, they might as well be the same age, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, but she had done a movie right. with, with John Wayne back in the uh, the mid '40s, uh, a western called Tall in the Saddle, which is uh, which is a pretty entertaining movie. Nothing, uh, not an all time great in any real way. But I think her chemistry with him in that movie is terrific. They were very well matched, and um, I think later on, if she, if they could have brought her back into the movies, say in, in Rio Bravo in the late '50s when she was in her mid to late thirties, which again, by Hollywood standards is like, well, this old woman who's been around forever, there could have been a, an air of, well, she's been around, she's experienced things. And I think that uh, interaction with John Wayne could have been pretty interesting in that part. Yes, of course there's, you know, it's a, there's a similar age difference between Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart in To Have and Have Not. Yeah, and, 25 um, years. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's something quite wonderful about the sort of contrast between this woman, you know, and this is is equally true with Angie Dickinson and John Wayne, I think, you know, you have this man who had sort of been, you know, been around for a long time and, and, you know, his, his sort of performance and Hawks is all about people, you know, people performing for each other. It's all about, you know, the way people present themselves and they're, you know, people like Bogart and John Wayne are these men who have perfected this performance. And then you have these women come along who are so young, so much less experienced than the men and yet are kind of, you know, in doing the same thing, sort of thing instinctually, but it's much more, um, you know, it's a little more obviously a performance for them which is sort of interestingly contrasted with just how young they are. And, you know, they're putting on this very hard-boiled act, and yet there's, you know, there's a sense of vulnerability still there. And, you know, when it works, and, you know, certainly, the you know, 50s Hollywood did far too much of, you know, casting men who were on the verge of, you know, senior citizenship, you know, with younger and younger women, and it does not always work. But when it works, you know, as I think it does in those two Hawks movies, there's something about these men kind of recognizing in these women, you know, that they're really doing the same thing, you know, and that there's a kind of added level of bravery with the women because they are in, you know, they're they're in so, so much more sort of vulnerable a position and yet are able to kind of have the same sort of insolence that the men have perfected over, you know, decades. So, um, but yeah, I, I agree. Um, it could have been interesting to see Ella Raines and John Wayne in, in Rio Bravo. 
drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my baby and one more for the road. I got the routine. So let's go on now to your book, In Lonely Places, Fillmore Beyond the City, published in 2011. So you talked a bit earlier in the show about um, how you came to write that book. So what is your what was your basic approach with that book in terms of finding something about film noir that maybe hadn't been covered in a lot of detail yet up to that point? I started out, you know, just with an interest. I started to notice more and more movies that had really settings totally different from what people expect from film noir. And I'm thinking of They Live by Night, Detour, Out of the Past, On Dangerous Ground, you know, films that are known and everyone recognizes as being noir and yet, you know, have have at least large portions that are not set in cities that are set instead usually in these kind of desolate spaces. But I, you know, I I didn't, you know, I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, and I, I really, I think the idea came to me after just coincidentally, I had seen uh, the hitchhiker border incident and raw deal in, you know, the space of a week or something. And I thought, well, you know, why is no one's really talked about what this means, but I needed to figure out what, you know, what I did think it meant. And I started to think about the post-war era when these films were made and the fact that it was actually a period when people were moving out of the cities, they were moving to suburbs, the highways were being built, you know, they were, people were moving from taking trains to being in cars, they were not going to movie theaters, they were staying home and watching television. There was a sense of sort of public space and social life sort of shrinking and breaking down and life becoming more isolated. And I thought that there was a connection between that and the use of these kind of empty spaces in noir, in films set on, you know, road movies, movies set in the desert. Um, And... I'm always interested in pushing a little beyond the um, the most familiar um, and the most generic sort of genre specific assumptions that people make about noir, but not really because I have a, an interest in challenging you know definitions or boundaries around what is or is not noir, but just because I think it's sort of silly to limit what you look at or what you talk about um, by these, you know, depending on whether, well, this isn't really noir, so let's, you know, like banish it from the conversation. Um, So, you know, I tend to sort of bring in anything that I think is of interest in connection with these themes. Um, And it's always, you know, important to remember that that there was no sense at the time that these movies were being made that that people were making a particular thing called film noir. 
Right. And I think that ties in with uh, a question I got just after starting this podcast from, I have to credit my sister-in-law in Israel with coming up with this. So instead of the usual question that noir fanatics like us tend to get from people is, what counts as film noir? What's the definition of a noir? But she didn't ask that. She said more, her question was more along the lines of, well, what is it about film noir that's so interesting? Why are you so into it? Which lends itself, I think, to some of the themes you were talking about how uh, the, sub- the subtitle of your book is Film Noir Beyond the City. So I think what draws a lot of us into noir, those of us who are really into it, initially is what we could maybe generally call the iconography. of, And I think that's generally what people associate with the term film noir. Even if they haven't seen very many of the movies, uh, they tend to have an idea of what that means, which tends to mean stylistic things like the black and white lighting, um, the femme fatale, the smoke-filled rooms, the shadows, the hard-boiled dialogue, that kind of thing, the fedoras, exactly. There was a a cartoon I just saw recently, I think it's from a few years ago, from The New Yorker, where uh, it's like a, I don't know if the title of the cartoon was just film noir, but it's a, a privatized office, and there's this alluringly dressed woman talking to the private eye and they're both smoking and there's light coming in through the Venetian blinds and it's casting shadows across their faces and the caption at the bottom is her saying if I hire you to find my husband will you turn some lights on in your office (laughs) I think that's what people think of as as film noir and that kind of thing that tends to draw us in we talk about of course noir city noir alley things that are associated with that but the more you get into it I think what reveals itself as what makes it so interesting for those of us who are so into it is that it really goes beyond that. It's not just the iconography, although that's a big part of it in a lot of movies. There's much more to it. And I think your book hits on, and what you were just talking about, really hits on that um, that common thing in noir that goes beyond the style, which is dealing with how people relate to each other, and in particular at that time in American society that it started out during the war, but moving in then to the post-war and into the 50s, that sense of being kind of at sea with these societal institutions that people were questioning in a really strong way that they had not questioned or that the questions were kind of suppressed before that in the name of the war or banding together during the Depression or whatever it was. And I think that tends to, I think people even today tend to identify with that in a lot of ways. I think that is kind of what, I don't know if timeless is the right word for it, because who knows 100 years from now what people are going to be talking about. But I think that's why it's managed to last so long and why people now, even now, are into these 70, 80-year-old movies um, that people at the time, when they were making them, as you mentioned, did not think of as being connected in this particular way, because the term film noir only came later people looking back at the movies and a lot of them were B movies like we were talking about before where it was just kind of quick low budget and they figured okay well maybe a few people see it and then no one will remember it but these common themes and these common ideas um, have lasted this long I think because there was something to it that no other type of movie or no other type of storytelling was connecting with well I agree completely and you know I think it's important to say that you know I love, you know, I love the iconography of noir. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that that's what draws people in. That's the first thing that attracts you is just the sound of these movies, the look of them, the style, the attraction to that era, you know, 
And those are the sort of surface pleasures, and they're they're very real and, you know, very attractive. And yet, you know, it, and there's, there's the wonderful kind of paradox with noir that it's, it's attractive and pleasurable at the same time that it is often really bleak in what it's saying. Um, but I have always thought that the most defining characteristic of noir are you know, first of all, a sense of interiority, a sense of being about psychological motivations, and that's part of what does make it sort of timeless, but also being about this, you know, this ethos of disillusionment, of alienation, of a sense of moral ambiguity, of uncertainty, of people really sort of not, not feeling like there's anything solid to hold on to. And you know, I think, I mean, it's it's such a sort of cliche to say that things are ahead of their time. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a kind of danger where people, you know, like to, to kind of praise anything from the past as being modern or being contemporary, as in, you know, like, because we can relate to it, it must, you know, be, uh, you know, it, it must be um, superior because of that. But something about the, you know, the noir kind of worldview does clearly speak to people, you know, and this really started kind of in the late 20th century with the sort of resurgence and with neo-noir and the sense that what had been kind of um, underground, you know, in the post-war era, I mean, this the, the attitudes in noir and the worldview was certainly not what was the kind of mainstream way that America saw itself in the 50s, you know, and people still look back at the 50s and kind of think about about the, the much more sunny kind of sitcom view of the 50s. But this idea of, you know, social ties breaking down and of and of you know this vision of of America, and I mean, I do think of noir as being a much bigger phenomenon than just what what went on in America. We haven't really talked about that uh, in this conversation, but but there is something special about American noir because it's this kind of idea that people, you know, everyone is has in, has had instilled in them, in them this idea that they should you know grab at success. That you know, they're they're they need to uh, you know that that there must be more to life than this, and that you know they should uh, pursue their own desires, you know, regardless of what rules they break. And then the way that they this kind of you know leads them ultimately down the road to ruin. And so it it's very much, I mean, again, it's it's very much of a of a of a cliche to say that noir is about the dark, you know, the dark side of the American dream. But I still think that's a fairly potent part of its appeal, um, that it's about a country that kind of encourages people to, you know, subscribe to individualism and to, um, you know, a, a worship of success and yet has very little kind of room for anybody who fails. Um, and, and that's very much what 
certainly classic era Hollywood noir is about. Yeah, and that uh, those those themes definitely still resonate with people today, and for the foreseeable future, I'm sure they will as well. <laughs> uh, let's maybe wrap up with um, just a mention of some of the film series that you've programmed. So you had one a couple of years ago in connection with your book at the uh, Museum of Moving Image, right, in New York? Yes, I did a series. This was in 2015. Um, largely built around some of the films that I had talked about in my book. It was called Lonely Places, Film Noir in the American Landscape. Um, and it was really fun to get to program some films. I mean, I programmed some films just because I had never seen them on the big screen, and I thought it would be really great to see them on the big screen. And, um, you know, we we got a lot of really nice prints. Um, I got to show Tomorrow is Another Day and um, The Amazing Mr. X and uh, The Savage Eye and some others, The Breaking Point, just some films that I think don't get seen enough, um, don't get shown enough. And, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And um, Desert Fury, I got to show a nice, Technicolor print of Desert Fury. So, um, and, it, and it got quite a nice response. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are programmers, and um, they often say that, you know, the way to get people to come to a series is to put noir in the title. And that, that is, you know, the crowds will come if it's noir. And I'm all for it, but it's, it's fascinating that, you know, this has really, at this point, is the most popular type of old movie um, that there is just an attraction people have to seeing film noir. And I was particularly trying to look for films that I thought would benefit from being seen on the big screen. That was kind of the idea behind that series. Um, You know, films that really have an interesting visual quality Right. And uh, the, with the noir city film festival series. So Eddie Muller, Alan Rohde, and everyone at the Film Noir Foundation, they make it look kind of easy to put these festivals on. (laughs) This movie and that movie, I'm pretty sure I'm going to guess that it's not nearly as easy as they make it look. So was that your experience with programming this film series as well? What, you mean tracking down the print? Yeah, exactly. Or figuring out exactly which movie's going to get shown and what's available. And uh, Mm -hmm. yes, we'd like to show this, but hard to get it? Well, I was lucky and I had a lot of help from the museum. Uh, This is the Museum of the Moving Image in uh, Queens in New York. They were able to find everything that I wanted to show. (laughs) So um, I was very happy about that and and really nice prints of everything. I think curation of a series is really an art, you know, and I have a lot to learn, I'm sure, but um, things like thinking about pairings and thinking about mixing together some things that really uh, are fairly well known but have a lot of, of appeal with some things that are lesser known in the hopes that, you know, you can draw people in if they recognize something and then maybe they'll stay and see the thing that they aren't familiar with. Um, so I did try and that was something that, that the curator there sort of specifically mentioned, that they wanted to, to, to kind of have a few well-known films 
uh, throughout the series, but then I could bring in some more obscure things as well. Because, you know, when you're someone who's very, you know, immersed in this and has seen a lot, I know there are, there are you know, we always think, well, let's get something really obscure, but, you know, it's always surprising how many people have not seen Out of the Past, how many people have not seen, you know, Touch of Evil or Kiss Me Deadly or, you know, and to be able to get people to come and see those is, um, is always still important. There always are going to be people who haven't had that experience. That's great. So I think we'll, uh, I think we'll wrap things up there. So uh, Imogen, thanks so much for joining us here on Noir Talk. Thanks, guys. This was really fun. Thanks again to Imogen Sarah Smith for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their mailing list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back with another episode next month, and until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk. <laughs>